0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. John Brown is out today. He is uh, on tour in Italy, so it's going to be just me, Al. Sorry. That said, my guest today is Joel Stratzel, who is best known for, I mean, you know who he is. He's one of the guitar players in Killswitch, one of the most legendary metal, metalcore bands of the past uh, 20 years. Um You know, they've released nine full-length albums, received Grammy nominations, Golden God Awards, Ladwire Music Awards. I mean, but we talk about this, and I know that he doesn't consider them to be like people who invented the style, but I think that their success is part of what put an entire style of metal on the map, and also influenced an entire production style. Like, uh, the mix on their first Roadrunner album by Andy Sneap basically defined an entire sound for like the next decade. So definitely had quite the impact and it's a good conversation. So let's do this. Joel Strassel welcome to the riff hard podcast thanks for having me it's a pleasure I saw in the pre-interview you said that uh, you went to Berkeley briefly briefly yep. how briefly when
1: just for one semester it was in uh, 1998
0: that's when I was there really like I I went briefly to in 1998 well and then I came back for another semester and then kind of like was there and like didn't go to class so but like (laughs) it was right around 1998 like so I'm I'm curious why you didn't stay?
1: Fresh out of high school, I think jumping into Berkeley, I kind of thought it was going to be you know rock and roll shredder school. Nope. <laughs> so I kind of I kind of found myself in a lot of like you know jazz combos and things like that. It was fun. I learned a lot of stuff. Started to sign up for classes for my second semester. I just I couldn't get. Um, I was taking lessons with Joe Stump, who was awesome.
0: Oh, he's right, ridiculous.
1: Really cool dude and uh, awesome player. And uh, a lot of the classes I tried to sign up for second semester, I couldn't get any of them because I guess the um, the students have been there longer you know get the first choices and one of my roommates who I became really good friends with was leaving as well and I was like you know man I just I wasn't really feeling it (laughs) so ended up coming home and uh, with the idea that I might go back and then things got going a year or two later with Killswitch by the time I finished all my you know core classes and stuff at home so
0: never ended up going back. I always hung on to the idea too that I'd go back one day or something And it just never happened. I mean, isn't the point of a place like that for you to be able to have a music career? And so if you establish your music career before you finish, that's kind of, that's fine. Like, isn't that the point anyways? Yeah, I think a, a lot of
1: people go to Berkeley. I think just to to build bridges and stuff and meet people to play with. You
0: know, Adam D was
1: going to Berkeley at the time I was there, and he was that was his his final year. He actually graduated. Wow! But we got to be good friends. Uh, we were kind of teaching guitar lessons at the same shop in Western Mass, and then we ended up in in Berkeley together for his last year, my first semester.
0: Did you feel like a fish out of water there? I'm just wondering because I've heard that it's changed. I've heard that there's a lot more metal stuff there now, and it's like a lot. Friendlier to that, but I felt very much like a fish out of water. There were like a couple of metal things to do, but by and large, not really at all.
1: Yeah, I kind of agree, man. Like, I, one of the things I looked forward to most was you know lessons every week with Joe Stump, and uh, I was just kind of heartbroken I couldn't uh, get him to be my teacher in the second semester. <laughs> Probably helped contribute to my decision to to take off. You know,
0: do you think that what you got out of there influenced you at all in your path forward?
1: I think so. I mean I think I think just having a, you know, basic understanding of some theory and stuff like that. What's in key, what isn't, knowing what you're doing a little bit, I think it, it can't hurt. I wouldn't say, I, you know, think about it consciously when, you know, writing music or anything like that. It's kind of always on the back burner, which I, I don't
0: think that hurts, you know? It's like almost like having a structure to like your understanding of music. Mm-hmm. I don't think that is ever a bad thing to like know stuff. I know that some players are like, I don't know any theory because that shit will like take away my personality or something. It's like, I, I just don't see it that way. It's like if your personality is that weak, <laughs> that like learning some theory will make it go away. Then uh, you got some problems, dude. For
1: sure. man. I think that's kind of one extreme and, and the other is like, no, you can't play that chord. That's not in the right key or you can't. Yes. You know, annoying. <laughs> that, that could be annoying too, you know? So I think, I think if you kind of know a little bit of what, what you're doing and don't, think about it too hard especially for playing rock and roll and metal and stuff i mean they really shouldn't or any kind of music for that matter i mean i was always of the school if if it sounds good to you then it's good (laughs) it doesn't really matter makes sense or not
0: totally i remember when i went to berkeley my roommate had an internship at a label in like 99 or 2000 or something because like i lived in boston for like three years and he brought a stack of cds home one day from (laughs) the label and it had like you know the slipknot self-titled and like just a bunch of stuff and in there was your first killswitch album and i just went through like the the stack of 20 CDs and I'm like this is crap this is crap this is crap this is crap slipknot that's cool mm-hmm. and then i came across yours and i was like oh wow this shit is fresh and what struck me about it was like how like how legit the riffs were and it was like almost like the best parts of death metal, like the groovy parts and like the really cool harmonies. But with this new kind of thing happening and uh, I just remember thinking, man, these guys have really good picking hands. Like this is some modern shit. What I'm curious about is you definitely didn't learn how to do that at Berkeley. Like where did that come from? The, the right hand work that, because like back then that wasn't like right hand work, it, isn't like it is now where like everybody knows you got to work on your down picking, but you got to like have a strong right hand. Like it wasn't in the, it wasn't like quite such a known thing back then.
1: Yeah, definitely not something uh you know, you, I guess you learn from the books. Uh, Adam and I were both big into Metallica. It's like growing oh, yeah. up obviously. So, you know, Master of Puppets, and that was, you know, one of my favorite records growing up and I had all the tab books for all the Metallica records, Megadeth. I was really big in the Testament I still am. I love Testament. It, it was, yeah. So it was kind of a weird mix between all of us. Cause I mean, Mike was coming out of Overcast when we were starting Killswitch and they were already kind of doing a mix of everything, you know, the metal and the hardcore stuff. And, um, Adam was, you know, into like a lot of old hardcore music, but he, he loved the, you know, the thrash metal too. And I was, I was probably more into death metal than the other guys at the time. Um, and I, I it was big into like, um, Sepultura. I loved the, um, Machine Head, you know, in high school, stuff like that. Um, so everything I listened to when I was kind of learning how to play guitar was all down picking stuff. <laughs> so, um, I figured out pretty quick that it was a bit of a workout and, you know, it took some time. How did you figure out that it was downpicked? When you sit down and you listen to a record, you try to figure out riffs and stuff like that. I, I feel like you can, when, when you're, when you alternate pick something, it just doesn't have the same sound as something that's downpicked. It doesn't sound as uh, aggressive,
0: you know? doesn't have that chunk to it. It's not like a wall. It's I feel like I, I describe downpicking as like a wall of riff mm-hmm. hitting you, basically. Alternate is more like this fluid kind of thing.
1: For sure, man. For sure. And I feel like with downpicking too, you can really kind of hear the, the tone of your hands more. You know, you can yep. kind of for sure like all day long, really. I mean some, some riffs you can't get around it. You got an alternate pick. But I mean if there's a way to do it down picking it usually sounds better. If you can pull it off. Like that's kind of always how Adam D and I approach stuff. When we're trying to record things and you know, it makes it hard. Sometimes we really <laughs> gotta work at certain songs, but um I think it sounds better that way.
0: I agree. I mean, you know, there's a lot to be said for having strong upstrokes. I think that one of the reasons that alternate picking is a step down for a lot of players is because their upstrokes suck. Yeah. And so some of the best players I know who like Wes Hawk or whatever have like have deliberately worked on their upstrokes to where they're the same velocity as their downstrokes. And gotcha. they have figured out how to get around it. But, like, I think even so, even so, there's a different sound to it. For sure, man. Even taking the upstroke thing out of the equation, like, I think people should be aware of that, especially when they're recording, mm-hmm. that the way you wrote something might not necessarily be the way it sounds best and, like, should explore it. Cause lots of times down picking something might be a little tougher. Yeah. You might need to like work at it for a few weeks and Mm -hmm. like gradually bump it up. It might make the difference between the riff being like a crusher or not.
1: Oh, for sure, man. Even if you're not alternate picking like an entire phrase, if you're down picking most of it, you can always, uh, you know, you can do an upstroke on like certain accents or certain chords just to kind of cheat a little bit and give your hand a break. (laughs) There's definitely Mm -hmm. ways around it. But if you can get the majority of the chugging stuff down picked, it really does uh, just sound a lot meaner.
0: Yeah. So being uh, selective. The tough part I think is the stamina. Mm-hmm. And then also the fact that I don't know if this, if it's like this for you, I'm curious if it is like, for me, at least it's the first thing to go. So like I have to keep it up nonstop or else it goes. <laughs> you too.
1: Absolutely. Adam and I both noticed, cause you know, when all the, the COVID stuff hit, we ended up canceling the tour. We didn't really play together for a, uh, you know, a, a year, almost a year and a half. And, um, tunes like uh you know crownless king which you know we're used to down picking the whole thing and we haven't we hadn't done it in a year and a half <laughs> it's like man this is exhausting <laughs> like how the heck did we do this um so it took a while to get you know back up to speed that's you're right that's always the first thing to go man is the, is the down picking
0: yeah it's a lot like you know extreme metal drummers and their double kick like mm-hmm. the they have to basically approach it as if as if they're athletes mm-hmm. they can't they just can't stop working on it yeah which is why a lot of them end up quitting yeah <laughs> eventually or like you know downgrading downgrading speed to like less extreme styles just because that goes fast it just yeah. goes fast it like, really does um, it really does so what did you do uh, just out of curiosity to build it back up honestly man i just played along with the
1: songs uh, for when we decided we did we were rehearsing at the palladium and we decided to film some of it and release it, you know, just playing the songs live. And uh, leading up to that, for about two weeks, I just played the set like three, four times a day (laughs) until my arm was falling off. And finally, like maybe, because we rehearsed for about a week to 10 days every day. And like even the first week of rehearsals, it was still kind of a struggle. Just leading up to it, I think we all just had to, you know, work at it again. Because, you know, it's still a lot different playing stuff like that, or you know, versus sitting around in your basement strumming an acoustic guitar. It's like, oh, wait a minute, this is... (laughs) We got to get these, uh, get these muscles back, I guess, you know?
0: Totally. Also, um, is playing standing up tougher for you? It definitely is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's a mistake I make a lot of the time, like leading up to a tour. If we don't play for a while, I'll, I'll sit down and play through. I'm like, Oh, I'm good to go. And then, uh, you know for the first nope. two or three shows man, i feel like my wrist is gonna fall off because i'm not used to playing standing that's another thing you gotta kind of maintain you know
0: yeah i guess some of the prog dudes get around it by holding their guitars super high but it doesn't look very cool
1: yeah I, I guess adam and i hold our guitars pretty high compared to a lot of people not that high though not that high it's it's, it's not the same as sitting
0: <laughs> no it's not that high like fair enough you guys hold it like real guitar player high. There's, well, with some exceptions, like, you know, Zach Wilde is a real guitar player mm-hmm. and he holds it low as fuck. But I think that like, there is a height that like, if you're playing intricate riffs and like, it really matters, you can't go too much lower than like this certain spot or you're going to be compromising.
1: Oh, for sure, man. Part of the reason uh, I started uh, wearing my guitar a little bit higher is just, a lot of the riffs Adam writes are uh, really big stretches. He has huge hands. I and mean, some of the chords he plays, you know, and some of the riffs are like five, six, seven fret stretches. I'm like, man, I, there's, no way I can, there's no way I can play that. My guitar's below my waist, you know?
0: Yeah, you have to do what you have to do to actually be able to play the stuff. I think that that's like something that, yeah, like you will not learn that in school. It's something that, is really, really crucial for people who I think want to do this for a living, like be in a band, play live, is actually preparing for how it's going to be in real life on stage, standing up, moving around, high energy, like stuff flying around, like getting distracted by just chaos that's a whole different ball game than like even the studio where like it's a super controlled environment and you can do it again and again and again and again i think you have to like prepare specifically for that and not just in band practice like everyone has to do it on their own absolutely i think that as long as people keep that in mind though it, it's fine uh i think the only time it's not fine is if someone is just shocked <laughs> like you said they have been practicing sitting down the whole time then suddenly get on stage you're like oh no I can't fucking play.
1: Yep. Your arm freezes up and that's it, man.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's just, it's, it's over. It's not fun. (laughs) We've all had it happen, man. (laughs) It's painful. Do you deal with any arm pain at all? I do at times, man. I had
1: a long time ago, I I used to teach lessons. I had quite a few students every day at this local shop and just playing guitar for, I don't know, six hours a day or something. Even if it wasn't strenuous, just could have been playing Metallica songs or could have been, you know, showing a seven-year-old, the merry men from the Mel Bay book or something. It didn't matter. Just holding a guitar for that long kind of wears on your wrist, man. Yeah, totally. So yeah, I I, I had carpal tunnel for a while. I had to like do some exercises for a couple of months and it wasn't really like, it's funny. It didn't really bother me when I was playing guitar so much, but when I was like opening a doorknob or driving my car or something, I would notice these shooting pains up my arm. So um, thankfully it didn't screw up the guitar playing too much, but
0: yeah. Did you have to go to physical therapy
1: and all that? Yeah. Yeah. Just had to see a, physical therapy person and just get a bunch of exercises and do them, you know, a few times a day for, I think it took about two or three months for it to go away. And it worked. It did work. Yeah. Didn't have to have surgery or anything. So that was fortunate.
0: How early on did you deal with it? Was it something where it's like, I'm noticing this, I'm getting it taken care of immediately type thing.
1: I got to the point where I probably had about 30 students every week. And I probably after a a couple months of that, I noticed that my, my wrist was just getting sore doing random things. Like I said, not even so much playing guitar, but I was like, so it it scared me because my favorite thing to do is play guitar. So I immediately, you know, went to the doctor and got a referral and, saw somebody about it. He's like, Hey, you got this. It's probably not that he kind of twisted my wrists around and stuff. He said, you're probably not in too bad shape. So as long as you do these exercises and he gave me a bunch of sheets with all these ways to twist my hand and fingers and stuff. And uh, uh, thankfully caught it kind of early on.
0: Yeah. I think people wait too long. Yeah. There's warning signs. I mean, I feel like mm-hmm. we're, oh, we're talking about a colon cancer screening, but like there are warning signs with this shit, like pain, your brain will send you signals that you're in fucking pain. The problem is people ignore that and they should not ignore it. Yeah. People are stubborn.
1: Like, ah, oh, I'll be fine. Yeah. You know, and so, well, then you know, it builds and it builds and it builds and before you know it, it's too late.
0: Yeah. It'll catch up with you. So I encourage people who practice a lot mm-hmm. and are feeling arm pain to, uh, either chill out on how they're practicing or, uh, go get it looked at.
1: Yeah. I mean, to be honest, that's one of the things that sort of discouraged me when I was at Berkeley because I was, you know, talking to Joe Stump about, I like, oh, I, you know, we're trying to do all this Yngwie stuff and all this fast picking and sweeping and all that. I'm like, how many hours a day do you really have to practice to get this stuff down, man? Because, you know, I'll play like, you know, an hour or two a day. days ago, like, oh, probably, I don't know, five or six hours a day. And shit, I don't even think I can hold a guitar that long <laughs> without my arm hurting. So it sort of discouraged me a little bit because I was having. it took me a little bit longer to get stuff down maybe I wasn't practicing enough, but at the same time, I didn't want to hurt myself. Maybe being a crazy shredder wasn't for me, you know?
0: <laughs> I don't know. I feel like if that's not who you are, like you'll know it. The crazy shredder types are crazy shredder types because that is like what they're drawn to do. If it's you, you're going to get drawn to it. And if not, mm-hmm. I know a lot of players that are really sick that um, flirted with the shredding thing and just for whatever reason just didn't go down that path. But it doesn't mean they're not awesome guitar players. And I think it's better... To, like, identify what it is that you are into, like, writing sick riffs or Mm -hmm. whatever whatever it might be. Identify that and go Mm -hmm. for that. And don't worry about – yeah, like, don't worry about being a shredder. That's not who you are. Because, like, the dudes who are into it, like – They don't have to try to be into it. Yeah, for sure. They're obsessed. I think you're right. And certain people are just built for it too, man. They can play a
1: guitar for 10 hours a day. It doesn't bother their hands. You know, they have the patience to do all that and play with a click for hours. It sort of took the joy out of it for me. Like some people just got it. I guess maybe I, I didn't have it. You know, it didn't just come to me overnight and I got frustrated.
0: I have like two hours of click work in me before I'm like, all right, that's good. Fair, man. That's more than I got. <laughs> some days is more like 30 minutes or 45 or an hour. You know, when I was at Berkeley, I did do like eight-hour days sometimes. But man, back then, I did see some people in the practice rooms who were there for like 12 hours a day, took lessons with Joe, actually, were like dead set on being as fast as him. Mm-hmm. He's fast as fuck. Oh, super fast. Even by today's standards. Like I remember he was doing the metronome at 300 BPM and stuff, but he was fast as fuck. And these students were sitting there 12 hours a day, trying to get that. And a few of them injured themselves so badly that they had to stop playing completely stop forever. Yeah. That's a bummer, man. I mean, I don't know if they ended up coming back to it years later, but they left Berkeley and stop playing guitar over those injuries. So I saw that and was like, eh, not going to be me. Yeah. I think Joe's one of those guys too, man. It's, he's really dedicated to
1: it. And he's, it's, it's effortless for him. I'm sure you put in all the time, you know, he's an amazing
0: player. You know, some
1: people are built for
0: it. Yeah. It, I want to just like zero in on what you said about it being effortless. It's not effortless as in they didn't work hard. It's like, I really do think there's this genetic component to it. Kind of like with athletics, well athletes sorry uh there's like a genetic component to like how big someone can get if they're weightlifting how high they can jump like you, you can like push it you can also take drugs and push it but like there's a limit there's a pre-wired genetic limit and um i think it's the same with music because it's a physical thing
1: absolutely man and it's and some people just have it you watch kids on youtube now that are 14 15 and i'm like man i <laughs> I've been playing guitar more <laughs> more than twice as long as this kid's been alive and he plays circles around me. <laughs> it's crazy,
0: man. I see that too. I feel like back in the day, maybe not even back in the day, like 20 years ago, but even five years ago, I remember a lot of people having very negative feelings about younger generation and being very intimidated by them. But I feel like nowadays when I talk to friends of mine that are vets you know they've been playing for 20 years or their band's been big for 20 years or all that they see these kids that are fucking awesome and they're stoked about it and uh, my thoughts are there was a time period around 2010 where music was in a really dark spot the quality of playing in metal was kind of declining and like it didn't really look like the future was too bright and now the future looks very bright, I think. like, And I think people who remember how dark it got for a second, you see this new generation coming up and like, it's like, yes, there's talent. Like, There's talent and it's going to be good. At least that's how I see it. I don't feel the same kind of negativity that I used to encounter about the youngins.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, man. I think people definitely appreciate talent these days and It's more than just image or getting on the radio or having a cool video. Like People appreciate people that can play their instruments again, which is awesome.
0: Yeah, there is a newfound appreciation for it. And also, I think that because of the internet, the ability to learn is so much higher that, yeah, you are having kids do things that it took, you know, they're doing stuff in like four years that it used to take back in the 90s, Someone eight years to get good enough to do or 12 years just because Mm -hmm. they have access to everything
1: absolutely man i mean kids can go online and 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 take lessons you know from their guitar heroes you know (laughs) you know if you're learning how to play in the early 90s or something there you didn't have that option you're kind of at the mercy of who was you
0: know teaching around you teaching at the
1: shop down the road you know
0: yeah if you're lucky and Wasn't it Kirk Hammett that learned from Joe Satriani or something? I believe so. Yeah. So if like you just happen to have Joe Satriani like down the street or something, that's fucking cool. But uh, that's not going to be the case for most people back really up until the past 10 years, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely, man. The internet has become a great tool for learning music. Blessing and a curse in many ways.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think with any new technology, there's going to be a dark side to it. Mm -hmm. I hear people focusing on the dark side of social media and dark side of the internet. And yeah, like everything has a dark side, but the good that it does is in my opinion, like overshadows the dark side. I think so. I agree with that. (laughs) Does it inspire you at all to see how good the kids are these days? It does, man. It really
1: does. Like I said, you know, kids, 14, 15 year old, you know, little boys and girls playing. They look like they're, you know, tiny little kids and they're, they're shredding and it's, it's inspiring, man. It makes me want to sit down and practice. More. I'm like, Shit, man, I'm 42 years old and I can't play that stuff. I've been playing for a million years. It makes me want to up your game a little bit. You know,
0: I feel like when I see new techniques that are becoming normal and metal, what I like about it is that in the past you would just sound dated if you just lived long enough, you know, you're just a product of your time. But nowadays, uh, you don't have to ever sound dated because you can always just look at what's new, you know, what techniques are now like uh, what Berkeley players would call hip or whatever. Like, for instance, hybrid picking is something that used to be only country and bluegrass players. And now like,
1: yeah, tele twangers and stuff, you know?
0: Yeah. Like all the metal dudes are doing it now. Yeah, absolutely yeah that's crazy i never would have never would have seen that coming
1: what was what was the guy's name who's uh he had a bunch of youtube lessons his name's marshall something you remember him no uh, i forget his last name he, he was doing a lot of that stuff and it sounded like like the most insane sweet picking and it was like hybrid stuff i'd never seen anything like it i, I think his name was marshall harrison and he's big into like guys like sean lane i think and stuff like that and all you know
0: musical artist guitarist that's got to be him yeah crazy good guitar player that's him one of these types
1: yeah and he's got a bunch of lessons he's a big legato guy and uh, does the hybrid picking and stuff like that
0: really really good player that stuff is nuts so that's why it's so interesting to me that it's now becoming part of the metal vocabulary because it used to be just yeah either bluegrass or whatever or these crazy types Mm -hmm. the you know the like insane virtuoso types
1: yeah it's funny there seems to be a little like a crossover too with um some metal guys that are picking up tellies and doing country stuff now too. Like it wasn't a guitar player playing for Sturgill Simpson was like a a crazy, like Swedish shredder. Right. And he's just playing telly. Like it's it's amazing. Killer guitar player. Forget his name.
0: I know who you're talking about. I think it's also because of the internet, you're not bound to the scene that Mm -hmm. you came up in that like all your friends are into, like that you're basically locked into. You can look up stuff, find new things and, It's also way more accepted than it maybe used to be. Like, I feel like heavy music used to be a very locked box.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah. As far as playing other styles or incorporating other styles or anything like that, I think the internet has allowed it to no longer be an issue. Like, people are just into what they're into.
1: Yeah, man. I remember like when I was in high school, if there was like a, you know, some kid who played in a death metal band was on stage chicken picking the death metal kids, probably beat him up.
0: (laughs) What are you doing? I was curious about this back when I heard your first record, because the heavy stuff was so heavy. Like back then, it was a ballsy move to have clean singing. Now it's like, you know, accepted. But back then, clean singing in music that heavy was not really a, not really much of a thing. Not really. Bands would get hated for it. So I thought it was a super ballsy move to not just have vocals, but have like serious singing on there. Did you guys get any shit for it back then? I
1: think in the very beginning, like at least in the scene I grew up in, there was kind of like the death metal kids or the hardcore kids. And I, I think like when Kilster started playing, like people were kind of like, what the heck is this stuff? Like, what are you guys doing? Like, it was kind of weird at first. We weren't the first band to do it. and It was kind of a thing going on and, in this area at the time I mean, like a lot of bands from the new england area were starting to do that you know all the remains and um shadows fall had a lot of that stuff for they, you know they had the death metal parts but they had the clean parts and shadows fall was doing a lot of diverse stuff like early on so, yeah i mean it's it, it wasn't like we, we definitely didn't start it but we enjoyed all that because all of us liked so many different kinds of music you know it's funny adam was into like hardcore and like brit pop <laughs> <laughs> Mike was a interesting guy. mix yeah I used to like you know the thrash and death metal and stuff so I, I think in our own weird way we were trying to put it all together into something that everybody found interesting um <laughs> weren't sure yeah. if it was gonna work or not
0: I guess how long was it before you started getting solid evidence in the world that hey this actually might work out
1: it definitely took a couple of years man for a little while we weren't quite sure what shows to jump on, what well, made sense. You know, we kind of just didn't fit anywhere kind of thing. Yeah, we kind of did our thing. And people kind of stood there and said, OK. And some people liked it. Some people didn't. We started in 99, maybe by like 2002 or so. It was starting to, you know, people were starting to kind of dig it.
0: But it definitely took a couple of years. We were oddballs for a little bit. Why do you keep going? The reason I'm asking is because like, you know, lots of people quit when they don't get the reaction they want. What was it? What was it that made you guys just like, fuck it? Not quitting.
1: One of the first tours we did that was like actually went really, really well. It was actually, um, so we did a tour with Soilwork and Hypocrisy and that's when Jesse was still in the band originally. That's a cool tour. It was a cool tour, but we were kind of the oddballs because there's a lot of like, you know, hardcore metal dudes at those shows. And so we were kind of like hit or miss with the crowds. And then Jesse left and Howard joined the band. And I think the first tour we did with him was with Kitty and Shadows Fall. I can't remember who else was on the tour, but it was a really di- like a diverse bill. And it seemed like everybody in the crowds liked every band and that was really fun for us. And
0: that's kind of inspired us to keep going. So you, it's, it's almost like, you saw that it was possible
1: yeah it's like hey this can work and then we did like a this is hardcore fest with howard that was one of his first shows or i can't remember what it was and uh you know the hardcore kids were starting to get into it. it it's kind of started to work we okay kids are you know moshing when we play and singing along and this is pretty cool so so we just kept at it man.
0: so i think it's interesting that you're basically on a tour there's a tour where lots of times those types of tours are considered a bad idea i guess like you guys in shadows fall aren't that far apart or anything but like kitty so it's kind of an odd lineup yep a bit you know those are can be considered risky tours sometimes they do fucking great but like Mm -hmm. it's interesting to me that on like one of those riskier type lineups as in not a sure bet grand slam lineup like you just know that that's where you guys figured out that maybe this will work after all
1: yeah for sure a couple years after that we ended up doing a warp tour some of our, you know, colleagues, management were saying, well, what are you guys doing doing Warped Tour? You are you know, metal band, that's a bad idea. Um, we weren't really sure how it was going to go, but like we great idea. stuck out like sore thumb, like I think in a good way, because, you know, we had mosh pits every day and kids were having a good time. And we're like, okay, this kind of works in front of the, you know, the punk rockers and stuff too. So,
0: um, but I th- yeah, I think that Warped Tour... I would have guessed it would have gone great for you guys, just because that crowd loves a good melody. That's the thing. It's like the Warp Tour crowd loves singing along to things, and they do love getting crazy. Yeah, It's like to. I think mean,
1: Hatebreed's done Warp Tour and done awesome on it, and you know, so their their kids are pretty open to the to heavier stuff.
0: Yeah, totally. It's important for bands that have a sound that is their own thing, or that is like. Or kind of like in between genres or something. Not black metal or not death metal or something. Just like has some death metal influence and some black metal influence, but like also like some prog or whatever. Like, you know, like those types of bands that you can't really identify the exact genre they're from, but you can identify them as themselves. If they can stick it out and just find their audience, that's actually a very, very big advantage to not be pigeonholed into one thing and to kind of be able to do your own thing if you can stick it out long enough to figure out who it is that likes you it might take a while
1: yeah for sure you got to put in the time and i think um, be willing to play for anybody who might like you <laughs> for quite a while because it took us several times around the u.s before anybody really started coming out to see us you know yeah after a few years man we got into a swing event and we're like, holy holy shit, this might work and we just kept at it. What was it like working with Andy Sneep that early on? Uh, Andy's awesome, man. I didn't go over to the studio to um do stuff with him personally. Adam did.
0: But you heard it. Yeah, Andy. Right? Be- yeah, Andy's
1: <laughs> become a good friend over the years. He's an awesome dude. And um
0: We're all huge fans
1: of his mixes, obviously.
0: I'm curious about your perspective because you didn't go. So I have never heard about you being a recording engineer. So forgive me if you are. But, you know, at least the perception out there is that Adam is the producer dude. Yes. And so it makes sense that he would have gone. So you as the person who's not that person, hearing an Andy Sneap mix come back, I'm wondering what that's like. That must have been fucking sick. Oh, it was
1: crazy, man. We used to record at a studio called Zing in Western Massachusetts. A lot of good friends there. It's a really cool place. Great memories. But yeah, Adam was doing the record along with Jim Fogarty, who was the engineer at Zing and still does stuff uh, around here and has remained a good friend. Yeah, we did all that stuff kind of in-house at with Adam, you know, engineering and putting everything together. And uh, Adam flew over to mix it with Andy. And uh, I remember him coming back with, <laughs> with CDs and handing them out to us. <laughs> We're like, wow, this sounds crazy. It sounded so much more polished than anything we'd done before. And Andy really knows how to create space and a mix and where you can really hear everything so that was kind of the first time we would heard anything that we'd done sound so polished it was pretty exciting man.
0: that sound though on that first one kind of like was a trendsetter um did it i mean it really was a trendsetter as far as metal mixing goes that was the start of that type of guitar tone that type of snare the types of samples he used everything like that was that was when that trend started i'm curious if when you heard it if you had the idea in your head at all like this is the new shit or were you just like yeah it sounds great cool
1: honestly we kind of left it up to adam and andy when when i went over there i I know adam was kind of pushing for big fat sounds and andy was pushing for cleanliness and space and i think the two fighting them fighting each other a little bit on it (laughs) it came out with kind of a cool product you know because i think maybe the guitars and the snare were a little thicker than andy would normally do but um Andy's mix was a cleaner than what Adam would normally do. And it was kind of a cool mix, man. Um, and I think those guys are, are a really good team.
0: Yeah, clearly. Sometimes I think that like creative tension is what leads to great and unexpected results because, you know, people have their tendencies, like maybe going too clean on a mix. For instance, you need that other person to push you out of that, to find this, uh, I don't want to say compromise, but this like new place Yeah. that alone you wouldn't have been able to do. For
1: sure, man. For sure that's you know people collaborating is is usually uh well not i shouldn't say usually but
0: a lot of times can lead to very cool things you know do you feel that way at all with uh with songwriting
1: oh absolutely man absolutely i um i always struggle like you know writing for killswitch like some of the guys can just put together you know a song from start to finish adam's very good at that justin's very good at that um i think me and mike uh we we write lots of riffs but we kind of need the other guys to help us figure out where to go with them you know so i always enjoy you know writing in a room with the guys rather than sitting in front of a computer and trying to come up with a demo you know so like You know, I like writing a riff or two and say, hey, guys, I got this. What would you do next? Or if somebody stumped on something, I'll say, hey, here's a bridge for that. You know, um, I kind of like doing, especially for metal stuff. I like doing things that way. It seems more like a band than people just, you know,
0: sending files, making computer demos.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Well, I think that also that's like a good complementary relationship because too many people in a project who do totally complete songs, like how much room do you have for that. Uh I feel like the good chemistry involves people having like roles. I'm sure that with the songs that they put together, they'll have a song that has a structure, but some riff just won't be that cool in it or there'll be something that's just not quite there yet. And they need that contribution from person who just focuses on writing the sickest riffs. For sure.
1: If a song can get through everybody's filter and everybody's happy with it and
0: everybody puts their little piece in it, it usually
1: comes out better than if if it's just one person throwing something. Hey, here's a whole song. It sounds more like, like us i think
0: in your situation that makes sense i think it's a special band when everybody's contribution makes it sound like that band
1: oh for sure man for sure i know it's not like that with everybody i mean certain bands like hey this guy writes all the songs and we play him when we tour kill switch has never really been that band
0: though we all try to
1: obviously you know certain records you know people write more things than the other guy on certain records but we all try to put in our two cents you know
0: i mean it's not necessarily a bad thing either if it's like one main person or something like opeth for instance it's a for sure phenomenal band and like mike is absolutely man those guy's are amazing you know mike's always been the main writer or the only writer i think he's always had great people in the band and it's always been a phenomenal thing so i think whatever the chemistry is or whatever the situation is that works best is what works best and kind of like identifying as a player that, uh, you are, you aren't the shredder type or whatever. I think it's important for a band to figure out like, what are we like, are we a collective? Um, are we like a benign dictatorship? Like what, (laughs) what, (laughs) like they're all fine. They all work. Like you can think of great examples of all of them. It's just important that like, if it is a situation where one person is just the writer, not to dilute that, Whereas if a band does need everybody's contribution to sound like that band, it's important to not fuck that up either. For sure, man. Absolutely. So out of curiosity, how did you guys figure this out? Like, was it a kind of, I'm guessing it was kind of an organic sort of evolution.
1: Yeah, it kind of just happened, man. We were jamming in Westfield at my parents' house years ago. Adam and Mike came over. Uh, they had another guitar player at the time who came to jam with us. And we just kind of played through a couple of ideas that those guys had. And then uh, I threw a couple of riffs at them and, you know, before before we knew it you know two songs became five songs and we we're all just kind of throwing riffs out there and jamming adam was playing drums at the time um so he would jump back and forth from drums and guitar hey try this riff here and it was it was kind of fun how we put out all the early stuff together um yeah it just really happened we didn't really think about it much the first record happened quick i think we
0: probably wrote all those songs in maybe a few weeks <laughs> do you ever get tired of metal and just the intensity of it
1: oh for sure man you know at the end of the night usually after a show it's, i don't go back on the bus or come back home and let listen, listen to metal <laughs> uh, how could you i like everything though man I, I love playing with kill switch and i love metal and especially all the metal i grew up with man i'll always love it you know yeah i like everything man all kinds of music I like, you know, singer songwriter stuff and you know, acoustic stuff I like classic rock, blues, all that. So it's nice. To, I think as long as you kind of keep whatever you're listening to fresh in your in your brain, that's a, it's a good thing, whatever it
0: is. How do you balance things out, for instance, with like Brothers Born and Hidden Skyline and Killswitch? I mean, obviously, I know Killswitch is like going to be priority, but also I'm sure you don't want to shortchange any project. Oh, for sure, man. A lot of people have trouble with doing multiple things. A lot of musicians have trouble. Like it's why, like a lot you see a lot of musicians who have like side ventures, but then a lot of musicians can't. Like they just the moment their band gets going, they can't think about anything else, they can't have side projects, like their creative brain doesn't work that way. And then you see other people who are like, Yeah, I have my band, I have my studio, I have like my clothing company, I have like my two other bands, and like everything's doing great. So I'm curious with someone who has like this main band that's a bit of a juggernaut, but then you've also got other projects. Projects out of it, how you make it all work
1: you can always have too much of a good thing you know <laughs> that's <laughs> uh going out on tour with kill switch it's like i uh, have a good time and focus on that and
0: we uh play our shows
1: and we you know, all love each other thankfully i think that's why we're still a band after all these years
0: that's a miracle
1: but at the end of a tour man it's nice to come back and like just i feel refreshed to do something else you know it's like i've been working on a record with brothers born my friend mike for a couple years now new record that will eventually get out there and uh, yeah, the Hidden Skyland thing's kind of new, um, which has been exciting. Been working on that for the past year or so. My good friend Matt Hebert is the songwriter in that group, and used to be in Wear River Club and Haunt, and a lot of bands I I liked for many years. He's a, a dear friend, so it's it's just refreshing to come home, you know, after playing a, you know six weeks on the road playing metal, and then go do something else, play you know acoustic guitar, or banjo, or <laughs> it's it's fun, man. Just change things up, and then it may, it makes you feel more ready. For the next time the next thing comes you know at least for me anyways
0: more like a like a palate cleanser almost
1: exactly exactly
0: brain reset
1: absolutely i think that's important
0: and and it sounds like you're you're taking it naturally as well like finish the record when you finish the record and we'll put it put it out when it's ready as opposed to like forcing it.
1: Yeah, exactly, man. It's uh, usually with uh especially the brother's born been doing that for a long time. We kind of write songs slowly and put them together slowly with you know people in the area that we you know that we love and love playing with and you know the first record took us a few years to make and I think we've been working on this <laughs> second record for like three or four years now. And it's close but and we're like it's not ready. Shit yet. takes time. Yeah we're not ready to put it out yet and we're not really ready to follow up once it's out. Like we want to be in a position we can do something with it and uh um, the time isn't quite there yet. So I think we'll we'll figure it out when we figure it out.
0: That's the thing. It's like you could have other things going on that like, Are massive time sucks. So like, I respect that you're not going to put something out. That's not ready. If you put those two things together, like that there's this one project, that's a massive time suck. Plus we'll not release projects that aren't ready. That just means that's like a math equation equals can take longer and that's fine. Yeah.
1: Or even like in the case of brothers born, like the record's so close to done, but like we're just, you know, Mike's got got a new baby and stuff. He's busy with a new job. And it's like, well, if we put this thing out now, are we, are we going to be able to play any shows? And we got some touring with kill switch coming up so it's one of those things let's just kind of you know get it right we'll spend some extra time in the mixes and and when we're ready to actually you know do something with it then we'll put it out so
0: so you said that uh thankfully you guys still love each other in kill switch yep (laughs) believe
1: it or not yep
0: (laughs) i mean i i do believe it just even though like uh i don't know you guys like we have a lot of the same friends and so i've heard a lot about you guys and i'm obviously super familiar. And one thing is that it just comes off as a really good vibe between the people. And from everything I've heard is it's a really, really good vibe. And you can kind of tell when there isn't that in a band, you can just kind of tell. But I think that bands who are not friends or are kind of like at odds with each other better be making a lot of fucking money. Yeah. Yeah. I honestly, basically, I, I <laughs> basically, I don't know how
1: people can, can, you know, be in a bus with other people they don't like for extended periods of time. Honestly, man, I wouldn't want to do it. Like, I'm so thankful that, you know, we all get along and, you know, we play shows, we have a good time, but we go out to dinner together we have drinks together and it's, you know, it's like, it's like my second family, you know? I think anybody in Killswitch would say that. And includes the crew as well. Those guys are all dear friends and we consider everybody family.
0: So it's not just like a business relationship. No, for sure.
1: We're definitely like all good buddies and you know, we would it sucks that we all live so far away from each other at this point. Everybody's kind of spread out. But yeah, we're all all very good friends. Adam's
0: been one of my best friends for many years now. So
1: I'm sad he lives in California. I live in Massachusetts because we probably hang out all the time.
0: (laughs) You know, that's cool, though, because like you hear about people that started off as best friends. You know, a lot of bands start that way but don't end that way. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that are no longer friends and no longer in a band together or the band became successful and they're keeping it going because of the paycheck. And I don't just mean like huge, huge bands. I mean like even smaller bands. It won't be like, I want my own bus, but it'll be stuff like, I don't want to sit next to this person on the plane kind of stuff. It'll be appropriate to their level, right? Flying to Europe to do some shows, don't seat me next to this guy kind of stuff. Yeah, as opposed to, we have to stay in different hotels tells but it's the same same idea that like some bands do get to that point and it's uh it's unfortunate sounds very difficult to keep going
1: yeah seems like it would take the joy out of it man for
0: sure (laughs) yeah man that sounds like the best possible situation a band that has had pretty massive success that still gets along like uh like great friends and still actually enjoys doing it that's like it's basically a miracle.
1: Yeah. I didn't consider us to be very lucky, man. We were just rehearsing a few weeks back, trying to write some new material, to kind of get going on it. And, um, you know, we'd sit in the room and jam for three, four five hours. And at the end of that, so I'm like, hey, where are we going for dinner? Let's go get a beer somewhere. Let's do this. I don't think anybody was in a rush to get away from each other, which is, which is awesome. So
0: after all these years. And Rare, what do you think is the luck factor with all this? I know you worked your ass off. You guys all worked your ass off and like you've had a team, that's worked their asses off. Like everyone you've worked with, like Roadrunner and Andy and you know, your crew, like everyone involved has been like just working their asses off. So like it's more than just luck, of course, but there's still a luck factor. And I'm just wondering how you see that.
1: Maybe it was just the perfect storm, you know, a bunch of guys that became friends and the guys who ended up managing us, uh, guys that are strong now on chain management, and all their dear friends of ours. Everybody at Roadrunner over the years we we're close with, and now Metal Blade. We're with we're close with the uh, the guys there, and it's just um yeah I I do think we're very lucky. I'm not really sure <laughs> how else to say it. You know,
0: I feel like you did say it that this group of guys became friends. Like I think that that's the luck in the equation is like who signed you? Was it was a getter, my getter, yep Okay, so like the day that getter discovered you guys, he was in the mood to discover a band or whatever. Like because there's like some studies that show that you know at certain times of the day if you're pitching an idea to somebody right before lunch or something or right before they have to go home, like the odds of them saying yes are way lower than if you get them first thing in the morning, for instance, like just because they're in a different kind of mood and they're not hangry, you know, shit like that. Or that like the day you met Adam D or whatever, you were both in the right mood for whatever would happen or that you guys met at the right time period for the kind of music you were going to make. Like if it was five years later, who the hell knows? Exactly. Five years earlier, like you put all that shit together I think that's that's the luck, yeah. Basically, yeah.
1: the stars kind of aligned, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's the stuff you can't predict and can't plan for and can't really control. And so, like when I see musicians and bands who really, really want to make everything happen and trying to will it into existence, I feel like I, I get that, and that's really cool. You should work really hard, but there's you have to also step back and just accept that there's this element to it that is has nothing to do with you. Yeah,
1: there is, man. It's, I think it's a combination of things. Like You have to meet the right people that you can create music with and play music with. Hopefully, you all like each other, and hopefully everybody's willing to actually give it a try. Because I know a lot of, you know, there's a lot of great bands that I know of that like will probably never go on tour because people won't quit their jobs or give it an honest yeah. shot. There's a lot of luck involved with that, like finding three, four, five other guys that are willing to drop everything and really give it a shot. And um, I just think we we were really lucky that all of us, you know, at the time that we met and got signed to Roadrunner, we're all willing and able to actually do that and try it for a couple of years instead of just saying, nah, we'll just play a show at the VFW every weekend. And that's it.
0: And also that you didn't quit yeah. after a tour, because that <laughs> yeah. happens a lot too.
1: <laughs> oh, for sure, man. For a couple of years, we we're all coming back in the red. It was, it was tough, but I'm glad everybody stuck
0: it out. I think also like the fact that the audience was ready for it, that I really think that that's like such a huge factor too, is like, nobody can predict that either yeah no one can predict any of this shit
1: yeah i think you nailed it earlier when you said if it was five years earlier or five years later very good chance it wouldn't have mattered you know
0: maybe even two years like who knows who knows i think about like a band like suicide silence for instance I was talking to them about this the other day like uh, that type of music the deathcore stuff that the way it got so big on myspace in like 2007 and 8 and these bands like Suicide Silence and Whitechapel and Joffrey Kyle being able to sell out tours without even being signed and stuff. They're not lucky in terms of like their success. These dudes work their fucking asses off and are talented as hell. And I remember Suicide Silence back in the day live was like the most crushing thing I've ever seen. And the luck factor is just that that Myspace crowd even existed in the first place and that they were ready for a band like Suicide Silence. That's it. There's the luck.
1: I agree with that, man, for sure.
0: So, uh, last thing, because I want to take up your whole day. Just out of curiosity, nowadays, you have to, I'm sure you have a different approach to guitar, like getting better at guitar or learning things than you did 20 years ago. When there's something you need to learn that's outside of your wheelhouse or just difficult, what's your approach to that now? How has it changed?
1: I guess when I I really have to learn something, like I physically can't play, you mean?
0: It takes me a while. Either physically can't play it or like mentally have a. It's like mentally outside of the wheelhouse. Like, for instance, someone who's never played a polyrhythm trying to learn a Meshuggah song.
1: Yeah. And I, I struggle with rhythmic stuff a lot because Adam and Justin write a lot of stuff you know, outside of you know, 4-4. <laughs> four, four. Um, so I just have to kind of like hammer it out. Sometimes like if a riff is intricate, I can't always like keep count in my head. I just have to play it over and over until I just feel it right. Um, so that really hasn't changed over the years. Um, but in terms of like something I just like physically can't play, I just try to slow it down and do it over and over. And, uh, you know, I guess it just depends on the part and what it is. There's always challenges. <laughs> and sometimes like Adam D's picking patterns, like the way he phrases stuff and the riffs he writes are totally different than the way I would phrase stuff. So I have to kind of like rethink the way I would pick a certain phrase or um, again, like, you know, he I said before he has like those huge fingers and he does these giant stretches and sometimes I'll have to, okay, how can I play that in a different position where it kind of works with what he's doing? Um, Because my my fingers are just uh, different than his. So it really depends on the situation, man.
0: I will say that one thing with age that has happened for me is that I'm better at getting better at things just because I've done it so many times. So when approaching something difficult, it's easier for me to map out how to Go about doing it as opposed to before that was just like brute force. Like, there's still a brute force side of it, but it's like easier for me to like break it down into sections or like today I'm going to work on this part, tomorrow I'm going to work on that part, or like know exactly what's difficult about it. So going to take this approach or something like that. I feel like that's what's changed. But at the end of the day, it just comes down to time spent. For sure, man. For sure. And sometimes like
1: polyrhythmic stuff, it's if you can break down the riff into, you know, and then picture it without the drums for a second. You know, sometimes a lot of people do stuff five or seven over four and it just feels all kind of wrong. We just kind of, picture the riff on its own and just kind of hammer out that first. And and before you try to groove with it, <laughs> it usually helps me a little bit with stuff like that.
0: Yeah, totally. Break it down into like fives. Just think of it in like three plus two plus three plus two, like whatever, like find a way to digest it. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, Joel, thank you very much for taking the time. I think it's a good place to end it. I appreciate you taking the time. It's been a pleasure hanging out.
1: Hey, of course, man. Pleasure talking to you, man. And hopefully uh, you. we meet up uh, when we're on the road one of these days or something.
0: Well, you got the Lamb of God tour coming up right yep
1: that's coming up in september it's gonna be awesome
0: yeah well maybe i'll make it to one of those shows right on man right on it would be very cool to meet you guys awesome awesome man